So today on stage are hormones. And uh, this is one of my favorite topics because I think it is just so, so interesting. Where do we start? How about the Bible? A story that just about everyone is familiar with is the story of David and Goliath. And you remember how David took a slingshot and got Goliath in the forehead with a stone and Goliath dropped. Very interesting story. And then David, of course, went off to chop off Goliath's head. And it was the triumph of the little guy over the big bully. How did this happen? Well, one suggestion is that Goliath suffered from multiple endocrine neoplasia, which is a disease that causes excessive growth because of uh, improper growth hormone regulation from the pituitary gland. Visual problems, again, associated with uh, improperly functioning pituitary. Low blood sugar, improperly functioning pancreas. And a soft skull because bone formation not properly regulated because of an imbalance in the parathyroid gland. So basically we can say that Goliath had hormonal problems. <laughs> These problems have been with us ever since. So let's have a real scientific look here and uh, let's get into our time machine. Uh, I always like to take a look, as you know, with a little bit of history because uh, if you know what's happened before, you have a pretty good guide about what is possible to happen in the future. So we'll climb into our time machine and make a stop first in the latter part of the 18th century with Dr. John Hunter, one of the most famous physicians at the time. And he was interested in anatomy. He was one of the great anatomists. And he was also interested in the anatomy of animals. And he focused on roosters. The roosters were not too happy with this because Hunter castrated them, mean, meant removal of their testes, and he observed that their combs on top of their head would shrimp and shrink and wither. He had no real explanation for this. It was just an observation. But it was quite obvious that there was some sort of connection between the, the gonads, the testes of, of the rooster, and the comb sitting on top of the animal's head. And then along came Arnold Berthold just a little bit later. And uh, he also was interested in roosters. Roosters were not uh, the, that is these doctors were not the favorites of roosters in, in those days, obviously, because Berthold also castrated roosters, but then he went one step further and he returned the testicle into the body cavity of the rooster, which is where it is anyway. The testes are not outside, uh, like with humans for the rooster, they're in the abdominal cavity. And he returned it there, and it turned out that the rooster showed normal sexual behavior, and the comb, again, became uh, normal. So obviously, the testes were somehow releasing something into the bloodstream. But Bertolt had no idea what this was. Again, he just made this rather interesting uh, observation. And then Thomas Addison uh, started to, to basically put hormones on a more scientific uh, footing because he studied humans. Thomas Addison was interested in the adrenal glands. These little glands sit right on top of the, of the kidneys. And he noticed upon autopsy that in some patients, those adrenal glands were, were shriveled away and that the patients before they had died had shown poor appetite, low blood pressure, uh, they were weak, uh, suffered from anemia and their skin was discolored. <clears throat> so he made the connection that the adrenal glands were doing something to prevent these uh, conditions. And uh, the next step was taken quite logically from this observation that, that people who had withered adrenal glands suffered from uh, a low blood pressure, that there must be something in the adrenal glands that can elevate blood pressure. And indeed, uh, very soon after Addison's discovery, uh, 
the, the idea that the adrenal glands is releasing something that prevents these symptoms, that was followed by the use of such extracts to raise blood pressure. And uh, so they didn't know, of course, what was in these extracts. They just uh, mashed up adrenal glands, uh, made an extract of them and injected it. And it turned out that this was uh, one way to raise blood pressure. <clears throat> and then Charles Brown Sicard, And what an interesting uh, man he was, trained as a medical doctor. And uh, it's interesting in a sense that he was born in Mauritius. And there's even a stamp uh, made after him in, in Mauritius. But he, has, he had uh, triple citizenship. Uh, he was born in Mauritius, but his, uh, uh, his parents were English and French, so that he had uh, English, French citizenship. And then he moved to the US and he also acquired American citizenship. And he in fact traveled back and forth between America and, and Europe and uh, made contributions all over the place. His interest was in the testes of animals. And uh, he was quite convinced that there was something that the testes were releasing that was important to health because he had noticed that, that castrated animals did not do well. And he thought that there was something in there that the testes produced that had a rejuvenating effect. And then he really pushed this idea because he went on to inject himself with the macerated testicles first of guinea pigs, then of dogs, when he was already becoming a senior citizen. And he thought that this would have some sort of a rejuvenating effect. And he claimed that, yes, it actually made him feel uh, young again. It was a very interesting development in, in I, I guess, what we would now call anti-aging therapy. <clears throat> and as you can imagine, there were hucksters back in those days as well, just as there are today. And whenever there's a, a, a new scientific discovery, the scam artist will jump in and take advantage of it. So not soon after uh, Brown Sicard gave his celebrated lecture about feeling young again, having injected himself with these uh, extracts, there were products that appeared on the market. Uh, these of course had really nothing to do with him. They just stole his name. And uh, these were various extracts, as you can see, testicle extract, gray matter extract, thyroid gland extract, etc. And the idea was that this would have a rejuvenating uh, uh, effect. And uh, there were many, many of these. Some of these were called Sicarine after uh, Sicard. And he actually sued some of these companies for the misuse of his name. So that, this kind of stuff was going on then, just as it... Uh, it goes on, uh, on today. Well, one of uh, his uh, followers, one of his disciples was uh, Serge Voronov, who actually was a, a Russian doctor. Originally, he was Sergei Voronov, but he moved to France and took on the French name of, of, of Serge. <clears throat> um, he had another interesting idea. He thought, gee, you know, if uh, injecting the extracts of these testes can have a re rejuvenating effect, what about just making use of the whole testicle? His idea was to take male testes and insert the testicle into the scrotum of, of a man to see if it had a rejuvenating uh, effect. Now, as you can imagine, there was a, a dearth of potential donors, donors for this such an experiment. So he made a deal with the French government executed criminals who were hung in those days, and he would have access to their testes. And he would remove the testes soon after they were executed and insert them into the scrotum of men. And surprisingly, there was no lack of, of men who wanted to undergo this therapy because when men start to feel that they're getting old, they will do almost anything to have some rejuvenating uh, uh, quality. So he carried out these experiments no complications, really, because he just inserted the testicle into the, the scrotum. He didn't attach it to anything. But of course, soon he ran out of executed criminals. So what's the next best thing? Chimpanzees, our closest relatives. 
So he started a farm actually in, in Italy where he raised chimpanzees purely to be testicle donors. And he took the testicles of chimpanzees, inserted those into humans, and he carried out some 1,700 such operations, he and, and his, uh, his, his disciples, all across Europe uh, with not, not many complications. And uh, it was an interesting era. Uh, he documented this in his uh, classic uh, textbook, as you can see, Rejuvenation and, uh, uh, by uh, Voronoff. Uh, not everyone was enamored of this technology. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was a medical doctor. Luckily, not a very good medical doctor because it was while he was waiting for patients who never came that he had time to write the Sherlock Holmes stories. He didn't think that this business of testicle transplants uh, was uh, the right approach to rejuvenation. He thought that this was pushing the envelope of science too far. And uh, he wrote a story about this actually, The Adventure of the Creeping Man. One of the Sherlock Holmes stories, as you may know, there are 60 Sherlock Holmes short stories and four novels. One of these was The Adventure of the Creeping Man. And it was a story of an aging professor of physiology uh, and Sherlock Holmes was called into the case when his children found him in the backyard swinging on a tree limb from limb. And as you can imagine, what he had done was injected himself with monkey gland extract and had made a monkey of himself. And this was uh, Conan Doyle's way of reproaching all of these real life experiments that were being done uh, with uh, uh, testicle injections and and. Uh, testicle uh, uh, transplants. In uh, North America, John Romulus Brinkley got himself a mail order medical diploma, which you could do in those days. He did some apprenticing with uh, a physician, and he thought that, that he knew a way to, to uh, make some money based upon what he had been reading about from Sicard and from Voronoff and what was going on in, in Europe. <clears throat> Brinkley had grown up on a farm where he, he had noticed the antics of, uh, of goats. And he knew that goats were very horny. He knew that he did not have an access to male testicles to replicate what was going on in Europe. But he sure enough would have had access to goat testicles. So believe it or not, Brinkley, an uh, <coughs> untrained doctor, began to do goat gland transplants. And Dr. Brinkley became famous for this. Uh, if anyone suffered from any kind of male problem, such as impotence, off they would go to Dr. Brinkley. And of course, he would recommend his usual procedure, which was a goat gland transplant. And he carried out a large number of these. Again, with uh, virtually no complications. And uh, because again, you know, he just inserted it into the scrotum. He never attached it to, uh, to anything. And uh, he had a very, very successful uh, career, made a lot of money, which he eventually uh, lost because pretty soon uh, there were all kinds of lawsuits against him, uh, people dissatisfied with the technique. But not everyone was dissatisfied. There is one famous case of a farmer who had come to Brinkley complaining that his wife had uh, suggested that he was sort of a flat tire. And uh, they, uh, <laughs> uh, he did uh, what Brinkley always did. He did a go-to-man testicle transplant. And a year later, he got a letter from the gentleman, from the farmer, thanking him because he had felt so invigorated. And not only that, he had also fathered a son. And amazingly, he called the son Billy, supposedly after the goat who had donated the, uh, the testicle. So it is quite incredible, these, these things that were going on. Uh, and this was just over 100 years ago. So it's, it's not ancient uh, history. All right. Well, let's, let's take a look at some of the other uh, endocrine organs, as we call them. Uh, endocrine organs are the organs that uh, release hormones. Now, the word hormone comes from the ancient uh, Greek to stir into action. 
because that is what hormones do. Hormones are substances that are released by a gland and they go through the bloodstream to stimulate activity somewhere else in the body. And the pituitary gland is a tiny little gland that is located almost smack in the center, geometric center of the human brain. And uh, it's roughly the size of a pea. Here's a rather fascinating look uh, at it. This is uh, taken through uh, an optical uh, fiber with a tiny little lens at the end of the, of the fiber. And uh, you actually see the pituitary gland here. And uh, this gland produces about one millionth of a gram of hormones per day. That's one microgram. That's such a small amount that you could not see that with the naked eye. And yet we could not live without this. So hormones can be active in very, very, very small amounts. And uh, that's one of the most fascinating things about hormones is how little uh, in terms of concentration in the body uh, and what an impact these can have. Well, the pituitary gland is sort of the conductor of the hormonal orchestra because it is the gland that actually sends out signals to other glands in the body uh, to carry out whatever their function is. So for example, the pituitary will produce ACTH, that's adrenocorticotropic hormone. This stimulates the adrenal gland to crank out its own hormones. Oh, and there are, as, as you can see, many, many others, thyroid stimulating hormone. The signal goes to the thyroid gland to produce uh, hormones. Signals go to the ovaries in females and, and the testes in males to uh, carry out their job. Uh, hormones go to the kidneys to stimulate their own production of, of hormones. So you can see why the pituitary is looked on as, as the conductor of this uh, hormonal uh, orchestra. There are a large number of hormones that the pituitary gland produces. Prolactin, somatotropin, ACTH, follicle-stimulating hormone, thyroid-stimulating hormone, these are just uh, some of them. So, for example, prolactin is the hormone that allows uh, uh, women, after they have given birth, to provide uh, breast milk. That could not happen without the pituitary. Growth hormone is what allows us to grow. Now, if there is some issue here, if the pituitary produces either too much growth hormone or too little growth hormone, then you have conditions of, of gigant, gigantism or dwarfism. And uh, this can be very, very impressive. For example, this gentleman here uh, was called General Tom Thumb. And uh, you see him next to P.T. Barnum. Uh, P.T. Barnum, of course, was one of the greatest showmen of all time, and he would collect curiosities. And General Tom Thumb was a curiosity because he was a perfectly formed little man uh, under, uh, under three feet tall. And people were very keen to see this uh, sort of uh, marvel of, uh, of humanity. And uh, he was uh, basically such a small stature because he had an improperly functioning pituitary gland. Now, if you have an overfunctioning pituitary gland where it produces too much growth hormone, then you get something like gigantism. And um, many years ago, I had the chance of meeting Sandy Allen, who at that time was the largest woman who had ever lived. She was well over seven feet tall, as, as you can see here. Uh, she uh, kind of exhibited herself in a museum in Niagara Falls. Very nice lady, very interesting to, to speak with. She had a car, she drove a car actually, where the front seat of the car had been totally removed. So she sat on the back seat because she could reach the pedals with her feet and she had an extended uh, steering wheel. Unfortunately, she has uh, passed away because uh, generally these people don't live very long. The heart has to work too hard to pump all of that blood. The male equivalent of Sandy Allen was Robert Wadlow. Uh, who was uh, well over, uh, he was actually over eight feet tall. I think he was eight feet, uh, one inch. 
And um, he also died at a very young age from, uh, from heart disease. Uh, but he was, uh, as you can see, a very, very impressive height. And he was also a pituitary giant, too much growth hormone uh, early on in his, uh, in his life. Now, this, uh, the knowledge of uh, growth hormone can, of course, be uh, uh, also uh, useful in diagnosing illness. Uh, you may recognize this gentleman here. Uh, this was Andre the Giant. Uh, Andre the Giant was seven foot four, weighed about 500 pounds or co close to 500 pounds. And uh, he also suffered from producing too much uh, pituitary growth hormone and suffered from this condition called acromegaly, where, as you can see, uh, this kind of the these strange it is sort of a strange facial uh, appearance because the bones have overgrown uh, in the face. Andre died when he was in his early forties. Again, these these people don't live that that long. Now there can be certainly uh, benefits to using uh, growth hormone when you have uh, children who are born with an improperly functioning pituitary gland, and we really should refer to them as people of short stature, uh, the terms dwarfs and midget are, 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 are frowned upon scientifically. Uh, but these days this can be treated because you can use uh, uh, human growth hormone and uh, uh, you can make them uh, grow a normal height. If it's diagnosed early enough, and it usually is because you notice when a child isn't growing and when they do the test and they find that it is due to lack of uh, pituitary hormone, well, these days they can be injected with pituitary hormone and uh, they can have a normal life and, and uh, normal uh, growth. So human growth hormone is a protein, uh, as I said, which is uh, made by the pituitary gland. And uh, in early research, they would uh, extract the hormone from the pituitary of cadavers. And uh, that uh, sometimes resulted in problems because uh, the pituitary can also have some viruses in there, which you would be transferring if you, if, if you uh, just do, uh, do an extract. And uh, today the, there's uh, no real concern about that because uh, human growth hormone can be manufactured through recombinant DNA techniques. That is the, the gene that is uh, known to produce growth hormone has been isolated from the human genome. It can be incorporated into bacteria and the bacteria will then produce human uh, growth uh, hormone. Back in um, 1990, a major experiment was published in New England Journal of Medicine headed by uh, Dr. Daniel Rudman. And uh, they had looked at what happens when you take uh, senior men and inject them with growth hormone. Now, what stimulated this research? Because as we grow, as we get older, the body produces less and less growth hormone. So the question was, could there possibly be some benefit to restoring the growth hormone levels uh, that young people have. It's sort of an interesting you know, idea to, to pursue. So they enlisted volunteers who would be treated with uh, human growth hormone. And in those days, it was still extracted from uh, 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 cadavers. And uh, it was uh, and a very expensive uh, business because it's, that's a very difficult uh, process. And, but they, they uh, enlisted a number of, of men. And interestingly enough, after being injected with human growth hormone, they did well. They did well. For example, there was increase in muscle and other lean tissue, decrease in fatty tissue, increase in skin thickness, increase in the density of bones in the lower back. I mean, these are good things. And as you can imagine, the press got a hold of this, uh, claiming that all of a sudden the the secret to the fountain of youth had been found. Well, the fact is that this study was stopped after six months because a number of the subjects experienced high blood pressure, uh, increased plasma glucose, carpal tunnel syndrome, and breast enlargement. Of course, the press didn't report on that. They just jumped on the original observation. And in fact, Daniel Rudman had to write a letter to the New England Journal saying that there had been these unforeseen consequences and that the study was stopped early and that they were not recommending human growth hormone injections. 
uh, of course, the scam artists got into this and all kinds of clinics opened up where they were claiming to inject people with human growth hormone. Uh, nobody knows really what they were injecting because the, what they were charging could not possibly have paid for human growth hormone, which in those days was very uh, expensive. So those clinics were eventually uh, shut down by the government. But in any case, uh, in the Rudman study, uh, even though there were these measurements before that that uh, you know seemed optimistic, uh, there was no actual improvement in any kind of physical performance. But that too has been forgotten uh, by the promoters of you know of these clinics, most of which have been shut down. So here was another one: this uh, you know the claim to rejuvenate people. But again, what they were injecting, nobody knows because uh, human growth hormone in those days cost about $17,000 and they weren't charging uh, that much. But anyway, uh, after the government got after these, and as you know, you, you can't keep a good scam artist down. They will always come up with something. And uh, they have. I mean, these days, you can make human growth hormone through recombinant DNA technology. So in theory, one can sell human, real human growth hormone, and it is available uh, because the, the cost has come down. Cost has come down. Uh, however, in many cases, what they are claiming to be human growth hormone isn't. They're all legitimate companies that sell human growth hormone, uh, but a lot of the companies are just uh, scam artists. So it is available. And if you have the money, I mean, it's not cheap. It no longer costs $70,000 an injection. It's, it's not cheap. It's, it's available. And people like Sylvester Stallone have used it. And they claim that it is somewhat responsible for you know, keeping, them, uh, keeping them young, although there are no real clinical studies uh, today that would uh, confirm that. But human growth hormone legitimately can be available. But as I said, many of the companies that claim to be selling human growth hormone are not selling that. Then there's another type of scam that they are pulling. And that is the sale of what they call human growth hormone activator or human growth hormone secretagogues. And uh, this allows them to, to make a claim that they're giving you the raw materials that the body needs to make human growth hormone and insinuating that the body will use those materials to make the hormone. Never mind that there's no real clinical evidence that the hormone, even if you could make it this way, does, does any good. But here's the argument that they use. Human growth hormone is a protein, which is true. Proteins are made of a chain of amino acids. And human growth hormone needs specific amino acids in specific amounts to, for the body to convert those amino acids into the hormone. So these growth hormone activators claim to have just the right blend of amino acids in the right amounts in order to form human growth hormone. And there are many of these. You can buy these in health food stores. And as you can see, make the claim lowers body fat, increases muscle tone, etc. Well, they're, they're playing a pseudoscience game here. It is absolutely true that it contains the amino acids the body needs to make human growth hormone, but that doesn't mean it's going to use these to make the hormone. This is kind of like taking an empty lot and piling bricks and doors and windows on that empty lot and waiting to see if they will self-assemble into a building. Well, that, of course, is going to be a very long wait. This is a very good analogy for this because the body gears down its production of growth hormone not because it doesn't have enough raw materials. Of course, we eat enough protein. We have all the amino acids the body would need. But as we age, the body no longer processes those amino acids into the growth hormone because the enzymes that are needed are no longer being manufactured. So it doesn't matter that you give the body the raw materials. It is not going to convert it into human growth hormone. But in any case, there's no evidence that increased intake of human growth hormone, even if it were legitimately injected, would have any significant uh, uh, benefit. All right, moving uh, down the body, we make a quick stop at the thyroid gland. 
and that, as you know, is located uh, in in the neck. Kind of looks like a shield. The word thyroid actually comes from the uh, Greek word meaning uh, shield, and it has a long history because goiter which is an enlargement of the thyroid gland, of course, is easily observable externally. And Pliny, the the, uh, Roman philosopher, recommended burning seaweed and eating that for the treatment of goiter. How they ever hitched on that wagon (laughs) is hard to imagine, but it actually, as you'll see in a minute, was quite a a correct uh, recommendation. Because in 1811, Bernard Courtois discovered that burning seaweed results in the release of of iodine, so that seaweed contains iodine. And uh, soon after, Jean-Francois Condé uh, thought that maybe iodine was the active ingredient in seaweed that was needed to reduce goiter. And of course, that turned out to be correct. And pretty soon after this, they started to use it. And then in 1835, Robert Graves, uh, English physician, described a condition whereby people suffered from goiter, that is enlargement of the thyroid gland, uh, palpitations in the heart, and bulging eyes. And this, uh, of course, uh, is uh, uh, indicative of hyperthyroidism, when the thyroid gland produces too much thyroid hormone. And uh, this condition has been termed Graves' disease, obviously after Graves. And today we understand that it's an autoimmune condition where there are antibodies that the body forms and attaches these to the thyroid gland. So for some reason, the body perceives the thyroid gland as to to be a foreign invader and makes antibodies against against it. And uh, of course, what then happens is that the body requires thyroid hormones. So the gland tries to work harder and harder in order to produce those hormones, and it becomes uh, enlarged. Hyperthyroidism, too much uh, thyroid production, causes anxiety and nervousness, a very quick pulse, tiredness, hair loss, weight loss, all kinds of symptoms from hyperthyroidism. And the bulging eyes here, actor Marty Feldman, uh, very, very characteristic of uh, this, of of Graves' uh, disease. So what do you do for it? There are drugs that can block the formation of uh, thyroid hormone, but it can also be uh, curbed by using radioactive iodine because iodine, as we saw, concentrates in the, uh, in the thyroid gland. And uh, uh, if you have radioactive iodine, that will uh, kill part of the thyroid gland through radiation. And that of course is what you want. You want it to produce less thyroid hormone. And also there can be a surgery. Now the radioactive iodine concept is a very interesting one because uh, you may have heard that uh, in cases of a nuclear accident, uh, people who live around nuclear power plants are given potassium iodine supplements to take. And the idea here is to saturate the thyroid gland with iodine so it will not take up any of the radioactive iodine that is produced by the nuclear reaction, and uh, which of course would uh, trigger cancer. And uh, this has never really been put into use, so it's hard to know if it would work, but it it at least has some scientific plausibility. Uh, Surgery uh, can also be done where the thyroid gland or part of the thyroid can be removed when the thyroid is, uh, is overactive. And uh, it is not particularly complicated surgery. Uh, it has very little uh, risk. Now, usually after this surgery, uh, patients have to take Synthroid, thyroid hormone, because uh, uh, it's very difficult to judge exactly how much of the thyroid gland to destroy, because of course you still need thyroid hormone. So with a pill, it's much easier to to balance the amount of hormone that is needed. So in fact, it is possible to live without the uh, thyroid gland. In 1914, uh, Hashimoto uh, reported uh, a poorly functioning thyroid gland that is an underactive thyroid gland. And he noted that a buildup of uh, white blood cells and this eventually came to be called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. 
And uh, this is a, a hypothyroid condition. So it's sort of the opposite of Graves' disease. And instead of being uh, very active, it leads to slug uh, sluggishness. Uh, instead of fast heart and palpitations, it's a slow heart rate. Uh, tendency to put on weight when, when people say uh, that they've put on weight because they, they have a hormone problem. This is what they are referring to. The skin becomes cold. Uh, thinking is kind of impaired and there's uh, hair loss. Now the goiter can be very, very uh, impressive in such situations. Uh, in this case, uh, these kids have uh, grown up uh, in an environment uh, where there was uh, basically uh, no iodine in the diet. So the thyroid gland was not able to make the thyroid hormone. Uh, it gets larger and larger as it struggles to extract iodine from the bloodstream. And uh, how do you treat this? Well, in 1914, uh, Calvin Kendall managed to isolate thyroxine from uh, the thyroid glands of, of uh, animals, of, of, of pigs. And pretty soon this was available as Synthroid. So today, uh, hypothyroidism, that is underactive thyroid gland is treated with Synthroid. Uh, and this is one of, you know, thyroid hormones problems are ones that, that are amenable to medical treatment. Obviously, the condition cannot be cured. Uh, you would have to take the Synthroid for forever. Uh, but uh, when it is taken the right dose, it, it certainly makes uh, life uh, possible. These days, it's certainly in the Western world, we don't have to worry that much about uh, uh, underactive uh, thyroid uh, or overactive thyroid, that is goiter, uh, because salt uh, contains iodine so that uh, there is enough iodine in the diet uh, to satisfy the needs of the thyroid gland. <clears throat> Moving down uh, the body again, we come to the adrenals. Uh, mentioned earlier, they're located right on top of the kidneys. And uh, the hormone that is produced in the center of the uh, adrenal gland in the medulla is adrenaline. This is the fight or flight hormone. And uh, it is also called epinephrine. This is uh, uh, the hormone that you need to increase cardiac output, more sugar in the bloodstream in order to give you energy. That's what you need under a fight or flight situation. So when you are in danger, you know that you can do things that otherwise you'd never be able to do. And that's because the adrenal gland pumps out adrenaline, does all the things that I just uh, uh, mentioned. Now, the outer layer of the adrenal gland is called the cortex, and this produces what are called the corticosteroids, the adrenal corticosteroids. Why cortical? Because they're produced in the cortex, the outer layer of the gland. And these protect the body from infection, exertion, and uh, counter any allergic reactions. Now, back in 1936, uh, Calvin Kendall, the same scientist who isolated thyroxine, isolated something he called compound E from the adrenals. And later this came to be called cortisone. Uh, a year later, uh, Reichstein isolated hydrocortisone also from the adrenal gland. And both cortisone and hydrocortisone of course have become famous. Hydrocortisone is the one that you can buy over the counter in pharmacies and you use it on skin problems, on, on uh, uh, various kinds of uh, skin reactions like eczema, and it works uh, extremely well. Uh, but what is much, was much more interesting uh, was in 1948 when Kendall, together with a physician Hench at, at the Mayo Clinic, tried the injection of adrenal cortical uh, hormones into a patient who had been claiming that she was always feeling fatigued and, and had no desire to do anything. And it was remarkable. Uh, within a couple of days of being treated with this compound E, which of course eventually became uh, known as cortisone, she actually went out of the hospital, she went on a shopping spree. So it was, it was just something that was amazing. And then in 1950, uh, Nobel uh, changed cortisone into prednisone, a simple chemical conversion, and this had a better side effect profile. And this also was able to treat Addison's disease. 
because as you remember from our early discussion, Addison's disease happens when the adrenal glands do not produce enough of their hormones. President Kennedy was a famous sufferer of Addison's disease, and he was treated with, uh, with uh, cortisone. Now these days, or with prednisone, these days there are many other chemical analogs of prednisone. One of these is dexamethasone, which you're hearing uh, about a great deal these days because it is one of the drugs that is used in the treatment of COVID-19 and it was given to uh, President uh, Trump because it has an anti-inflammatory effect. So these drugs, they, the corticosteroids as they are called, are very important in medicine uh, today. They also cause excess energy and insomnia. They rev you up. And uh, we saw the effect of that the day after uh, Trump got the dexamethasone when he was saying that he felt better than he had ever felt in his, his life. The pancreas. Uh, the pancreas is located uh, just uh, underneath the, the uh, liver. And uh, it has this rather unique shape. It kind of looks like a corn cob. And if you want to see what it really looks like, here it is. That's the uh, human pancreas. And of course, historically, very interesting for us here in Canada to talk about this because of the connection to Banting and Best at University of Toronto. But what does insulin do, which is the chemical that is produced by the, the pancreas? It is generally referred to as the gatekeeper for glucose. Glucose is required by every cell. This is the, the fuel that cells use for energy. And without insulin, glucose cannot enter the cells. This was demystified by Frederick Banting and Charles Best, University of Toronto in the 1920s, working with dogs. And they were able to isolate the chemical that the pancreas produces. And that chemical, of course, is, is insulin. And it was first manufactured in Toronto by Conoc Laboratories. And boy, was this ever a game changer. People who suffered from uh, diabetes uh, who in those days had very short life expectancies, now could live relatively normal lives with injections of insulin. And it wasn't all that difficult to produce. It was produced from, from the, the pancreas of, of pigs on a very, very large scale. And uh, it was injected. And uh, of course, someone who had uh, type 1 diabetes, or as it was called juvenile diabetes in those days, uh, would inject themselves every day and lead relatively normal lives. That doesn't necessarily have to come from pigs. It can come from uh, beef as well. Uh, they have a pancreas that produces insulin. And these days, it can also be made through genetic engineering techniques. Uh, Humalog is human insulin. And uh, this is manufactured because the gene that codes for insulin has been isolated from the human genome. And it can be again, inserted into a bacterium, and the bacterium then will follow the instructions of that gene and produce insulin. So insulin production these days is, is, is not a problem, and this has been one of the miraculous breakthroughs in medical research, uh, because diabetics now can go on to, to lead uh, almost uh, uh, normal lives, uh, thanks to, to animal extract insulin and now to, to Humalog. Now, again, moving further down the body, we come to the gonads, which may be just the most interesting ones because these are the uh, organs, the endocrine organs. And again, endocrine organs are the organs that release hormones. Uh, in males, uh, the testes, and in the female, the ovaries. And indeed, these are the, the organs that really make us into men and women. Uh, testosterone, of course, is the main male sex hormone, and estrogen is the main female sex hormone. So the real chemical difference between men and women is either the dominance of testosterone or of estrogen in the body. Testosterone is produced in the testes. Estrogen is produced in the ovaries, but small amounts of these are also produced elsewhere in the body in some fatty tissues and also in the adrenal glands. Both men and women have both testosterone and estrogen. Men obviously have far more testosterone than estrogen and women the other way around, but both 
uh, genders have both of these uh, uh, hormones. And it is the balance of these hormones uh, that is very important in terms of, of determining the so-called secondary male and female characteristics. That is the muscle structure, hair growth, sex drive, etc. These are the hormones that are really uh, important. So obviously when it comes to um, uh, sex change operations, uh, these hormones play a very important role. In this case here, when uh, a man uh, transforms into a woman, this kind of transgender uh, situation involves obviously the use of, of hormones in addition to some surgery. Now to uh, transform a man into a woman, uh, the, the surgery uh, is uh, obviously easier than to go the other way around because you can more easily remove something than to, to add uh, something. But anyway, to go from a, a male to a female, uh, you do need to use uh, estrogen hormones. And of course, the, the classic example here is that of Bruce Jenner. In the 1976 Olympics, uh, Bruce Jenner won the decathlon, which is one of the premier events of the Olympics. And uh, I was there. I was there in the Olympic Stadium in, in 1976 when uh, Bruce won the gold medal. And uh, it was uh, really a spectacular uh, event uh, to watch. Well, today, of course, Bruce is no longer Bruce today. Uh, she is Caitlin, uh, having transformed from a man into a woman. Now, it's very important to understand that this has these gender transformations have absolutely nothing to do with, with uh, homosexuality. Um, these unfortunate people, uh, I think the best way to describe it is that they are born into the wrong body. They feel, in the case of Bruce Jenner, that they are not really male. They feel like they should have been born into a female body. Of course, the, I, I, I know it's very hard to understand for, for anyone who's never had such, uh, such feelings, but it can make life terrible for these people. So when you can kind of you know, transfer, uh, it opens up all kinds of opportunities. And uh, so in this case, of course, uh, uh, there was um, some hormonal involvement, uh, estrogen, uh, whether or not uh, Bruce ever had any surgeries is not clear. It's never really been uh, talked about. Uh, but estrogen is, is the hormone that you would have to use in order to uh, change the musculature into a female type of musculature. Now, you can also go the other way. That is from a woman going to, to a man. Uh, in this case, uh, a surgery would involve removal of, of the breast and, of course, uh, the use of testosterone. And as you can see, it's, it's quite impressive. When you inject testosterone, it certainly changes the muscle structure. Of course, you also have to do some exercise in order to, to really bring out the, the muscles. Uh, testosterone is the main male sex hormone and it can be injected. Uh, now there's a, an issue here uh, because testosterone in the body also gets converted to dihydrotestosterone. That's one of the, the common metabolic uh, reactions. And uh, this uh, results in an enlarged prostate. And this is why some of the drugs that are used to control an enlarged prostate, like finasteride or Proscar, block the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. That's how it, it works. Now, testosterone, of course, is also associated with the sex drive. And um, the only way to know whether or not anyone has low blood levels of testosterone, there's only one way, and that is to do a test. And uh, if uh, a man has too low levels of testosterone, uh, then it's possible to discuss with uh, an endocrinologist the injection of testosterone. Uh, it doesn't, it, this is not a totally risk-free business because uh, as I said, testosterone can lead to more dihydrotestosterone, which can lead to an enlarged prostate. And uh, testosterone is also an anabolic steroid. And uh, anabolic steroids, as you'll see in a minute, can have different effects on, uh, on the body. Now, if you want to block the effect of, uh, of the male hormone, male hormones are called androgens, then there are drugs known as anti-androgens, like Zolodex. 
And uh, this, for example, would be used in the treatment of prostate cancer because that, that cancer is promoted with, by uh, uh, testosterone. And it can also be used uh, as uh, ciproterone acetate, which is one of these drugs that blocks the action of testosterone, to, to uh, treat sex offenders. Men who claim that they have uh, these uh, unnatural uh, sexual desires because they have too high levels of testosterone can be given this drug which will block the testosterone uh, levels. And this is uh, referred to as chemical castration. And uh, uh, in the UK, at least, men uh, have the option uh, who have been convicted of the sex drives of either undergoing surgical castration or undergoing chemical castration. Now, I mentioned anabolic steroids. The term anabolic means uh, building. So anabolic steroids are so-called because they build muscle. And this is what um, people who have, you know, uh, weightlifters or wrestlers who want, uh, or body sculpture artists who, who want a lot of muscle will inject. Now, of course, it doesn't instantly give you the muscles. You still have to do the exercise, but it certainly helps put the, the muscle where, where it, uh, it should be. It also can result in you know, extra strength, extra energy, and this is uh, why athletes will use it. But there are, there are issues here. In uh, 1988, I mean, we were all thrilled in Canada when Ben Johnson won the gold medal, 100 meters, premier event of the Olympics. But it turned out he had cheated. He had taken stanozolol, which is one of these an anabolic steroids, and of course, he quickly fell from, from glory. He maintained that you know he hadn't done that, but it's very clear that 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 he did. Uh, it is also clear that the Russians are into this. Uh, we've had the Russian doping scandals. The Russians have made an industry out of cheating at uh, at sporting events uh, using these anabolic steroids. As I as I mentioned just before, anabolic steroids are don't come without any uh, complications. I mean, they you know they they will uh, uh, reduce the output of the testes because the testes then no longer have to produce testosterone, so they shrink away. There are all kinds of complications, so not a good idea to be using anabolic steroids. Now, the female equivalent of of testosterone are the female hormones estrogen and progesterone, and uh, during the menstrual cycle, these uh, ebb and flow, that is go up and down. Estrogen maximizes the middle of the cycle, progesterone somewhat later in, in, in the cycle. And uh, when the levels of these hormones decrease at the end of the cycle, that's when the lining of the uterus is shred, and that's when the menses uh, begin. Uh, progesterone is the so-called pregnancy hormone because it is what is needed to keep a fertilized egg uh, implanted in the uterus so that it can grow into an embryo. And this brings up a very interesting question. How come that a woman who is already pregnant cannot get pregnant again? Now, this is not intuitively obvious. Why should you not be able to get pregnant, be inseminated again, and have sort of two buns in the oven at different times? Uh, obviously, the human body, female body says, no, no, the one, do, doing this one at a time is, is enough. Let's wait until we get this out, until we try this insanity again. Um, but how, do, how does the body know that there's a pregnancy underway, that, that there should be no fertilization? It is the pituitary gland that sends a signal to the ovaries to release an egg for fertilization, for possible fertilization. When there is progesterone in the system and progesterone is produced when an egg has been fertilized, then this blocks the signal from the pituitary gland so that no more eggs will be released from the ovaries. Well, that's an interesting observation because then you, you get to the question of what can we do chemically to come up with the so-called pill? to prevent uh, conception. All you have to do is trick the body into thinking that it is pregnant with progesterone, because then the pituitary will not release the hormone that stimulates the ovaries to release an egg. 
Well, uh, the original research here, in order to get progesterone to carry out these studies, uh, involved uh, lots of pregnant sows, and they were needed to produce progesterone, but this was not nearly enough to do human experiments with to see if it would work as a, a contraceptive agent. But uh, the company that was working on progesterone made a deal with a milk delivery company. In those days, milk was still delivered in, in bottles left on, on the doorstep. Uh, every woman who was pregnant and who would leave a bottle of pregnant urine on the doorstep would get a bottle of uh, milk in return for free because this would provide the company with lots of pregnant urine to extract progesterone. Of course, the milkmen were not happy with this. So the company also uh, made a deal with them that they would get a certain stipend for every bottle of pregnant urine they brought back. And this is where the expression, the milkman did it comes from because it was in the interest of milkmen to have as many women pregnant as possible. So sometimes the milkman would have uh, done it. Uh, anyway, uh, all of this need to extract progesterone from urine uh, was ended when Russell Marker, a brilliant chemist, found that there was a chemical that was present in a plant called the Mexican yam called diosgenin, which could be in the laboratory converted into progesterone. So now there was enough progesterone, but the trouble was progesterone had to be injected in order to serve as a contraceptive. That was not acceptable, but a little bit of chemical manipulation, changing the structure of this molecule allowed it to be taken orally, and this resulted in the birth control pill. And uh, of course, there were many versions of the birth control pill, a lot of controversy in the early 1960s about it, but today it has become you know, uh, essentially standard uh, fare. The other female hormone is uh, estrogen. Estrogen, again, is what makes women into women. And uh, when you have less and less estrogen being produced in the body, that results in uh, osteoporosis with poor bone formation and the prospect of uh, vertebrae collapsing, et cetera, and uh, you know, uh, hip fractures. So the question is, can you prevent this? Uh, with uh, hormonal therapy. And yes, Premarin. Uh, Premarin is so-called, it comes from the urine of pregnant horses, pregnant mare's urine. That's where it is just easily available. You can extract estrogen from there and it can be used uh, therapeutically. But there are contraindications uh, for estrogen. Anyone who suffers from migraine, strokes, and any of these conditions uh, cannot take estrogen. Uh, there are possible uh, long-term consequences of estrogen treatment. Uh, breast cancer is the one that you've heard uh, a lot about. It can also restore cyclic bleeding, which is a problem because most women by that time have had enough of menstruation. Uh, however, estrogen therapy, even with these concerns, in some cases can be very beneficial. So what is the truth about estrogen treatment? Uh, if you read some of the popular press, they will tell you that there's a 30% increase in breast cancer risk for women who take estrogen supplements. And then you say, oh, gee, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But this, this, these pills belong in the garbage. But let me show you how numbers can be misunderstood. The fact is that in a 10-year period after menopause, the chance of any woman developing breast cancer is about 3 to 4%. Three or four women out of 100 will develop breast cancer. For those who are taking estrogen, this increases to 5%. So the difference between 3.5 and 5 is 30%. That's a relative risk. What we really need to look at is the absolute risk. It means one extra case for every 100 women taking estrogen. Looked at it, looked like that, you can also claim that it reduces the chance of remaining cancer-free from 96 to 95%, in which case you say, okay, no big issue here. Well, there are many women whose life is miserable with menopausal symptoms for whom it is worthwhile to take estrogen. So this should be discussed with the physician, but the 30% increase is a misleading statistic. Now, finally, for women who don't want to take Premarin, uh, you go on the internet and you will see all kinds of advertisements for natural estrogens extracted from plant sources. None of these have any significant efficacy. Uh, 
And if they would have efficacy, then the same side effect profile would be seen as you see with Premarin. Because if something is an estrogen, then it acts as an estrogen. So if someone is desirous of taking estrogen, then it should be consulted with a physician with one of the modern, modern estrogen supplements, not one of these over-the-counter products. And very finally, uh, these days, uh, in addition for, you know, to, to all of these controversies about the taking hormones, we have the issue of somehow having a hormonal effect that is undesired. So for example, chemicals that are referred to as endocrine disruptors, these are uh, chemicals like the phthalates or bisphenol A that you've heard about, which are found in plastics and may get into our environment and may have an effect on hormonal systems. But that's another story for another time. So I hope that you've learned something here about hormones and the questions that, that arise and see what an interesting um, family of chemicals uh, this is. And uh, we'll get around to talking about all of these so-called endocrine disruptors at another time. But again, let me uh, uh, remind you that you can always check out our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. You'll have all kinds of up-to-date information about everything, including COVID. And you can always email me at joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca.